Welcome to the Liberty Baptist Sermon Archives. The message you're about to hear was preached at Liberty Baptist Church in Easton, Massachusetts. You can find out more about us or contact us at mylibertybaptist.org or just look us up on Facebook. And now we hope that this message from God's Word will be a blessing to you. Acts chapter 6 is where we are tonight here in the Word of God. And our title is this, for 6-4, we must have 6-5. For 6-4, we must have 6-5. And I'll be honest with you, in your bulletin, if you've read, I actually have a typo there. The, the name of the message is wrong. It's a little bit backward there, but I think uh, it will make sense here for us uh, in just a few moments. You know, I do find this to be true when it comes to church life. Pastors typically get an outsized part of the attention when it comes to anything relating to a church. Meaning this, when a church is going through a time of growth and a time of spiritual success, I think when we use the word success, I want to be careful how we use that. But Joshua chapter 1 uses the word success when it talks about being faithful to the word of God and being faithful to the mission that God has put before us. Not worldly success, but success in the ministry of which God has called us to do. I believe a lot of times pastors get an outside, an outsized rather, share of the praise when really... Of course, all the praise goes to God. 11 weeks in a row of visitors, well, who gets the praise for that? Well, I can't reach my hand too far back to pat myself on the back. All the praise really goes to God. But really, even beyond that, as the Lord has done these things, He's also used not just me, but all of us in different ways. And many of you have had a visitor that in the last 11 weeks has come, someone that you invited over the last few weeks that maybe you've been praying for for weeks or months and just all of a sudden showed up to church. What a blessing that is. But pastors sometimes get far too much credit for what God is doing in a church because churches aren't built on the charisma of pastors as much as they're built upon the character of the members of the church. I'll say that again because I think that's important. Churches are not built upon the charisma of pastors as much as they are built upon the character of the members of the church. For every Moses, there has to be a Joshua. For every Moses, there has to be an Aaron and a Hur. Remember during that great battle where Joshua was down in the valley and Moses was holding up the rod of God and as long as the rod was held up, the battle would be a success. He needed Aaron on one side and her on the other to be able to hold his arms up. And as they did so together, there was victory. Well, everyone had a part. You had Moses as the commander in chief, if you will, Joshua as the general, uh, the aides being uh, Aaron and her. And of course, the soldiers who were out there actually doing the work and putting their life on the line, all working together to be able to do that which God has called them to do. And so as we prepare for revival, and of course, I hope that in your heart this week, you are preparing for revival as I must do the same this week as well. It's my desire for us all to continue to strive to be who, to be who God calls us to be in this organization that is called the church. And I want us to look at the example of the first church here in Acts chapter 6 in a text we've been in before, but looking at it with a little bit of a different spin to understand to have Acts 6, 4, you must have Acts 6, 5. So if you could stand for the reading of God's word tonight, if you're able, we're going to read just five verses, Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. The word of God says this, In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. 
Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. By the way, verse number four, six, four that we were just mentioning, I hope that it's your desire. And I would say no one has ever given me any other thought process whatsoever that you want to have a pastor who gives himself to the ministry of prayer and the word of God. You, you want that as a church. You've expressed to me the desire. Can I put it this way? You don't want me to go to sermons.com, pick up an outline and bring it to you on Sunday. You desire for me to pray and you have desire for me to seek the Lord and then study the word of God and bring to you fresh loaves of bread right from the word of God, not my own, but of the Lord here on Sunday. But verse five says this, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And we see in 6.5 that there were some men, there were some people who were there to work together with the pastors, the, the epistles, or the epistles, the apostles rather, epistles or letters, uh, the apostles that were there, and they worked together, everyone in harmony and unison, so the work of God could move ahead. And when I think of revival, we have a church that needs to work in harmony and unison. No one more important than the other. All cogs in the great wheel of the organization that God calls us the church. And us working together will help revival reach our church and Lord willing, our town and beyond. Heavenly Father, be with us tonight as we get into the word. I pray that you would help me specifically to just focus on that which you would have me to say and nothing else. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Our text tonight shows us a church that's out of balance and for it to continue to grow as God intended, the problem needed to be rectified, and the problem needed to be rectified fast. Many of you know the background of this text, but just quickly tonight, because I'm a Baptist preacher, I have to give you the background of the text. That's kind of what I do. Uh, in verse number one, there was a problem. The widows that were supposed to be ministered to, there were widows that were supposed to have food delivered to them and to have uh, provision delivered to them by the church. And as Satan is so good at, he's good at taking things that are honest misunderstandings and trying to turn them into something that is much greater to be able to drive a wedge in the church. And that's what happens here. It says in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there were so many people in the church, it had arisen so quickly, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians, th those Jews with a Gentile heritage, those Jews with a Greek heritage against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Meaning this, so many people came into the church that something was not going to get done that should have gotten done. And somewhere along the line, there were some people, some widows that weren't getting taken care of. And it just so happened it was these Grecian widows. And so now there is this murmuring about the Grecians saying this, well, the Hebrews are taking care of their own, but at the same time, they're not taking care of us, which have a different uh, ethnic background. And so that wasn't the case, by the way. It wasn't that they were trying to neglect this whole group of people, this whole group of women, but it just seemed to be the case. And as it is so often the case in churches, when there's a problem, murmuring begins. 
It wasn't necessarily that someone tried to rectify the problem and say, well, let's see exactly what's happening. The murmuring is what happened first. And listen, what happened was just a natural outgrowth of a church that was growing. This was a church that was on the move. 3,000 get saved in one day and 5,000 get saved another day. And the Bible tells us at another time that really there was no number that we have recorded in the Bible of how many were saved. It just so happened when a church is on the move, sometimes things don't get done that ought to get done. Now, that's not necessarily something that as a pastor you would be proud of, but it's just kind of the fact of the matter. And this is what happens here. And verse number two says, And the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, when he says this, when they say this rather, it wasn't meaning that they were demeaning the work that was done to the widows. But what they were saying is, we have a special calling upon our life. And they make clear what that calling is in just a second. But they said, you don't want us to go out and to deliver food all day and not do that which God has called us to do as a church, and specifically as elders of the church. It says this, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And there it is in verse number two, uh, that word serve tables there. I've mentioned this before, use the Greek word diakonos is where we would get the word deacon today. And although I believe when we see this text in front of us here, certainly there is a background of us saying, oh sure, there are deacons in a church at times and then there's a pastor of the church. Sure, that would be the case. But I would say, instead of looking at it so microscopically, let's zoom out a little bit and understand this, that there were people in a church that realized they all had to work together for the church to continue to grow and thrive and be what God had called it to be. And they said this, you want us as the pastors, as the elders, you want us to be able to be in the word and you want us to be able to be in prayer. To do that, we need some that serve tables. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that the epistle, the there it is again. The apostles were never to serve tables because they should. I mean, I would say this. A pastor ought to be able to smell like sheep. It means he's around the sheep. A pastor ought to know how to get his hands dirty once in a while. Uh, that's a good thing. Just as much as for everyone else, that they sh it's not like they shouldn't pray or be in the word. Everybody should be able to do all of those things. But there's an emphasis for the apostles. There was an emphasis for the servants and that they all were working together in harmony. And as they did so, God was going to bless. And so because of that, verse five tells us that the saying pleased the whole multitude. They heard this and they said, this is the answer that we're looking for. And they chose seven men. And these seven men are found right here in verse number five. Well, and just going through very briefly this text and just giving you the background, you might already be thinking, Pastor, I know this message. You've preached this message before. This is a, you preached it from different texts, but I know the message you're about to preach. It's one of those, let's sign up for things messages. So there's things that need to get done. And so you're going to talk to us for about 40 minutes about things we need to sign up for. And then we're going to go, Pastor, can we just sign up for it now? And can we leave early? And the answer is, no, you can't sign up for it now. And no, you can't leave early because it's a Baptist church. I'm sorry. That's not what I'm preaching tonight, though. Now, are there things that need to get done in a church? Well, yes. There's landscaping that needs to get done on Saturday. We need people to come and do that. Uh, that's important. You say, but no one's going to get saved because of landscaping. Well, I would say God's house deserves to look its best, doesn't it? To put our best foot forward for the community so people know that this is not a ghost town. 
so people don't think that this is a derelict building, that they know that the outside reflects the joy and the excitement and the vibrancy of what's happening inside the building. So it's important that we do such things. But this is not just a let's sign up for things message. If you think that, you would be wrong. This message, and I believe the emphasis that I have for us tonight, what God has laid on my heart tonight, is less about what we need to do in the church and more about who we need to be in the church. Okay? It's less about what we need to do in the church and it's more about who we need to be in the church. Because if we be who we need to be, the doing usually takes care of itself. If we be, and again, bad English, but it's okay, I'm going to Oklahoma, they'll appreciate it, okay? If we be who we need to be, then the other doing things will end up taking care of themselves. And so sometimes we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Boy, I'm really messing up all kinds of things tonight, but I did that one on purpose. But we put the emphasis in the wrong place. Sign up, sign up, sign up. And we need to say that sometimes. Volunteer, volunteer, volunteer. And we need volunteers. But if we are the people that God calls us to be, if we are the body that God calls us to be, if we are revived, then God's going to take care of what we want. And I imagine that everybody here wants a pastor uh, that's in the word and in prayer. And, and I hope that's your prayer. I believe that's your prayer. And it's my prayer for you. Uh, listen, I don't want to come up here and not having been in the word during the week. And I don't want to come up here and not having prayed over the messages. I, you say, pastor, what would that feel like? I wish I could tell you I didn't know what that felt like. Unfortunately, in 10 years as a pastor and 18 years in full-time ministry, it's unfortunate, I can tell you, there have been a few times that I've gotten up in behind the pulpit and I had no business getting up behind the pulpit because I hadn't been a man of prayer and the word as I should. But it seems to me clear here where they say, if you want us to do this, then we need you to be able to do that. If you want 6'4", then we need some people who are 6'5", and not just deacons, not just men who fit the qualifications of deacon, that we find in 1 Timothy or in Titus, but that there are some servants who say this, it's not about what I do, but it's about who I am. And as I follow the Lord and abide in Him, then the doing things will end up taking care of themselves. God uses men and women as servants within the church, and He's called every believer to be an agent. He's called every believer to be ambassador, uh, just like these seven appointees here in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 specifically. I've been reading a book the last few weeks, and I'll tell you, there are some books that I read, and I read them through very quickly just because they're the kind of books that I just enjoy, and I don't want to put down. I mentioned that book this morning about Robert E. Lee, and I read that fairly quickly because I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed uh, what it was. And I, It was one of those things that I didn't necessarily have to savor every bite of it. I just wanted to read it and enjoy it and learn a little bit about him as well as the United States at that time. But I've read a book the last few weeks, and it's called Old Paths and New Power by a man named Daniel Henderson. And I say that not because I'm giving a full endorsement of him and his ministry, because I don't know all of him and his ministry. But it's been a book that was recommended to me, and one that was a great help to me. The kind of book that you read, you say, boy, I want to keep reading it, but I only need to read it a chapter at a time. Because if I read any more than that, I'm afraid I'm going to miss you know, what God has for me. And I was reading in that book about the fact that, well, if we want new power from the Lord. If, if we want to be able to be who God's called us to be, we've got to go through the old paths. And sometimes independent Baptists, when we talk about the old paths, if you've been around independent Baptists for a long enough time, when you hear old paths, you think about things like old-fashioned things. You know, we have to be old-fashioned. 
you know, things like bell bottoms and shag carpet and things like that. That's most of the time what people think uh, when they're talking about old paths. That, that's not what I'm talking about tonight. I'm talking about paths so old that they've been forged here in the Word of God. That we go back to what the Word of God says to find new power, not a new form of power because the power's always been the same, but yet that we are Im imbibed with a power uh, that comes from God even greater than what we've seen. And I feel like when we see uh, here in this text gives us a bit of a roadmap, again, not for what we sign up for, but the kind of people we need to be. And as we do so, I believe God will help us as we have our desire for revival here in our church. And so there's several things. I want to mention them quickly. And I hope you'll write these down tonight. Uh, these come from that book. I, I just took them right from the book, these seven points. Some of you just groaned in your spirit. Seven points. Uh, you just, I just lost some of you right there. But no, uh, we'll be quick about these because I, I, the points are not the main point, if that makes sense. Uh, they're just kind of offshoots of what the main point really is. But I see this here, first of all, number one, I see a heartfelt commitment to exemplary living. A heartfelt commitment to exemplary living. What did these servants do? Well, it says in verse number three, Wherefore, brethren, look out among you seven men of honest report. They had exemplary living. Honest report means that nothing could really be laid at their charge, that they were living in a way that they had a good testimony. And if we are to be who God wants us to be, we must live in such a way that we have the best testimony possible. And I know sometimes that false uh, words and slander can be laid against us by the world, and certainly that's the case. But even when that happens, it shouldn't be able to stick. It's not something that should be able to land on us and stick and hold uh, to have honest report. Uh, holy living uh, is important and it isn't confining. Holy living is not confining. In fact, it actually gives us further opportunities for service and for soul winning opportunities. The closer we are to the Lord, the more opportunities we have to serve and the more opportunities we have to reach other people with the gospel. The Bible tells us, it says uh, that, uh, that there are those who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Which reminds me that there is a form of godliness, which is not godliness, which has no power. Which if we were to take the other side of that coin, we'd be reminded that with godliness comes power. With godliness comes power. Why? Because we are allowing the Holy Spirit to be able to work through us and we have opportunities that we have to reach other people. And so there was a heartfelt commitment to exemplary living, but there was also a humble submission to the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about this in Sunday school where it says that they weren't just of honest report, but they were full of the Holy Ghost, a humble submission. I touched on this this morning, but you can't be proud and full of the Holy Ghost at the same time. You cannot be proud and filled with the Holy Ghost at the same time. Uh, it is the uh, exact opposite of what the Holy Spirit would desire when, the when we are filled with pride. Why? Because the Holy Spirit speaks out of himself. The Holy Spirit makes much of Jesus. And so for us to be filled with pride, the Holy Spirit uh, cannot work in the way that he would desire to uh, in us. Just as the Holy Spirit's ministry is to make much of Jesus, a filling of the Spirit should cause us to draw people to Jesus Christ. And so what do we need to do? We need to humbly submit to the Holy Spirit. That's how revival comes to a church because people humbly submit to the Holy Spirit. And again, I feel like this needs to be said. And I, there's some things I'm developing and praying about and thinking about in my mind, but there's so much of Christianity today that is shaped by politics. There is so much of Christianity that's shaped by, could we even put it this way, right-wing politics that is so opposite of humility. 
It is so opposite of humility. And we have allowed that to enter into who we are as believers. And we've allowed that to come into us. And God's not doing the work that we're hoping he's doing. Again, if there's hope for this country, it's not in the ballot box. It's in the house of God. And that means that we can't be automaton. Uh, uh, we can't be robots. That's the word. Uh, we can't be robots, epistles, uh, uh, apostles, uh, robots. Uh, we can't be that uh, for the world. We've got to be careful. We've got to be so uh, submissive to the Holy Spirit. And again, this is something that, that I'm working through, something I'm praying on uh, in, in my own life and something that I've really given a lot of thought to and I'm continuing to give thought to uh, because there's so little humility. There really is. But shouldn't as Christians we be different? Shouldn't we be different? And so there's a humble submission to the Holy Spirit. John 16, 13, we read this this morning. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that he shall speak, and he will show you the things to come. But I also see this, number three, there was a hunger for godly wisdom, a hunger for godly wisdom. Verse three says, they were men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. And I think by looking at this in its uh, grammatical form, we could say that they were full of wisdom because it says full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. I think we could rightly say that they were not just full of the Holy Ghost, but they were men full of wisdom. You and I need to make sure that we are people of godly wisdom, that we place a priority on godly wisdom. Job 28, 28, and unto man, he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And apart from evil is understanding. You can't go through the Proverbs very far without finding uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or you can't go very far in the Proverbs without finding wisdom. I mean, it is a book of wisdom. But I think so often we take the wisdom of the world and there is a worldly wisdom that is out there that is not wisdom. There is a worldly wisdom that's out there that's built upon worldly knowledge. And we have to be careful that we do not take that in in our own lives. We should hunger for godly wisdom, hunger to have more of God's word, hunger to learn more of his word, to talk with others and to not just gain the knowledge, but implement it in our lives. Well, how do you do that? Well, you got to have the Holy Spirit because without it, you can't, without him, you cannot do what God has called you to do. So there's a heartfelt commitment to exemplary living, a humble submission to the Holy Spirit, a hunger for godly wisdom. There, see, look at that. We're already number four. See, you're doing great, all right? A humane understanding of the needs. A humane understanding of the needs. Now, that may not be uh, readily apparent here, but it says that they were these men, honest, full of the Holy Ghost, full of wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. There were needs that needed to be met. And there were some people that needed to be put over those needs. And those needs needed to be addressed in a way that was humane, that was loving, and that was caring. Uh, Daniel Henderson points out in his book, as I was reading it, that each of these seven men here in verse number five had Greek names, indicating that they were Jews with Greek backgrounds and Greek language skills. So that's a reminder to us that they were sensitive to the needs of other people. And I know sometimes we get, use that word sensitive and we're kind of off from where we need to be spiritually. But the idea is this, is that they had a compassion. They had a care for these people. They did not want to see people harmed in the ministry. I'm afraid if someone had a problem like this today, depending on the church, people would say, well, just get over it. Stop crying about it. 
What's your problem? What, you don't like Peter? What, you got a problem with uh, John? And there could be dissension that's there. But what they said is, no, you know, even if the problem is not at the source they think is the source, as in ethnic issues, there is a problem here. And we need to deal with it rightly. And people who will take care of the need. You realize there are people all around that need the gospel. I know who I'm talking to. You know that. There are people within our church who have needs. We need to take care of those needs as best we can. The first church had all things common. You know why? Because the government wasn't going to help them. Their, their neighbors weren't going to help them because many of their neighbors weren't Christians. And if it didn't get taken care of within the body, it didn't get taken care of. But I'm afraid we have so many different programs and we have so many different opportunities today that people don't actually look to help each other within the church first because there's so many other places you can look to for help. And many of those programs started, I believe, because 100 years ago or more, the church stopped helping those who were part of the church. And so because of that, the government filled in the gap and helped in those ways, in ways that I believe the church should humanely help one another and carefully and compassionately help one another. There existed then and is now considerable value in assigning people for the tasks for which they have a natural understanding and genuine concern. Meaning this, they chose people who could best relate to the other people that had needs. Again, this isn't a racial or an ethnic thing. This is just the reality of what's here. Do you know there are some people in this church who have skills that are better related to certain opportunities and ministries than others? Some of you would say, if I spent five minutes in junior church, somebody would die, and it could be me. Some of you might say that. There would be some that would look at the needs of the church building and say, I wouldn't know how to fix them if I tried. Where some of you look at some of these things and you don't see problems, you see solutions. That's a blessing. There are some that are able to help with landscaping. There's some that are able to do work on the outdoors. There's some that are able to be greeters. There are some because God has gifted you for what he has called you to do. So we use that humane understanding to be able to help one another and do what God's called us to do. I also see this number five. There was also a healthy view of their spiritual potential. A healthy view of their spiritual potential. And that really takes all of these things here together. When I look at this, there wasn't the lay people and the clergy. Now, again, there were defined roles. Let's not be mistaken. There were deacons and there were uh, pastors. There were elders. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is this. Lay people sometimes take that word lay people and they think it's a command, like I need to lay down, you know. Uh, that, that's not what it means. The laity, the clergy. You know, when I see the word of God, here's what I see. Every believer is a saint who is set apart for service. Every believer is a saint who is set apart for service. Whom we may appoint over this business. And really that talks about the same thing as well. Whom we may appoint over this business. They had the ability, uh, the potential to do so. You know, I, I believe there are people that God has, even in our church, that have potential to do great things. But it's unrealized because they don't want to take that first step of faith. We, we were just talking, I was talking with someone this morning about just how we all feel underqualified to be able to serve God in whatever capacity we have. Let me remind you that it was John the Baptist who looked at Jesus Christ and said, I'm not worthy to unlatch his shoes. 
That was said in Matthew, that was said in Mark, that was said in Luke, that was said in John. It was actually said in the book of Acts as well. It's the only remark we have of John the Baptist that's recorded in all four Gospels. Must be important if it's on all four Gospels. Well, if John the Baptist, who is the greatest born among women, Jesus' words, not mine, did not feel worthy to unlatch and untie the Savior's shoes, then you and I don't even get to be in the same state, do we? But yet he's called us. He's equipped us. You have potential to be able to serve God in a greater capacity than maybe you even imagine. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Number six, I also see this, a helpful participation in ministry. They were eager to take over the administrative and operational burden from the apostles. They were eager to take this over. It was as if they asked, what can I take charge of in the church to free you to focus on prayer and the ministry of the word? What can we do, pastors, they said, to free you to do the ministry of the word and of prayer? They helpfully participated. They realized they needed to be able to have a part in what God was calling them to do. And it's the same way for us today to participate. And can I just tell you, it's a joy to participate in ministry. Now, is every time you minister a joy? I helped in the fourth and four and five-year-old junior church at Southwest Baptist Church back when Diane and I, before Diane and I got married. It might tell you that working in the four and five-year-old class was one of the most miserable experiences of ministry I've ever had in my life. It was awful. There was not one part of it that I enjoyed uh, for most days. Uh, I was in there. Uh, you know, they want to go to the bathroom every two minutes. They want a snack every three minutes. They're not listening. Uh, they're not paying attention. They're, they're punching each other. They're punching me. Uh, it, it's, and that was just within the first, you know, 20 minutes. And you're looking, wondering, when is this preacher ever going to be done? And it's Sam Davison, which means he'll never be done. When is this going to happen? But you know, as I look back, I realize this, although there may have been days in ministry that were not great, there may have been days in ministry that weren't a blessing, it's always a blessing to minister. It's always a blessing to minister. Because you look back and it's amazing that a lot of those things fade from the memory, but you remember faces you had an impact on. Remember names that God allowed you to be able to have an impact in their life. That we get to participate in the ministry I've been thinking a lot about Penny Yesikevich, who was here many years ago, and I won't get too far into the details of, of why I've been thinking about her and praying for the family, but I will say this, and I, I was talking to someone this week, and I think about how she taught a bunch of little snot-nosed kids, several of which happened to be in Bible college or graduated from high school and are, are in college and serving the Lord in church, preaching the word, or are praying about Bible college that God's using. Who would have thought? I bet there were days back there when we had her shoved in that back room. She was teaching a Sunday school class in that room. Have you been in that room? It's not a room. It's actually a spider trap is what it is. And that there are young people who God is using to do great things. God lets us, allows us to do that. You may not always see the fruit right away. You may not get to see it till heaven, but that's what we see here. And I also see this, a holy expectation of supernatural results. Look at verse number six. Whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And what happened? 
the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. A great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Imagine that you went in the headlines tomorrow in the Boston Globe and it said something like this. 30 priests join local Christian church. Would that surprise you? Would me. Imagine we read the Washington Post. It said something like this. Local rabbi and congregation call upon Christ and merge with local church. I would say that would be pretty outstanding. We could go on and on with that. But do you realize what it's saying here? A great company of the priests got saved. You know, the priests, those who worked in the temple, I would say that those would be the most dedicated, the most zealous for the old ways, if you will, more than anyone with the exception of the Pharisees. But yet the Bible says a great number of them got saved. I have to wonder, do we expect God to work in supernatural ways anymore? Or do we as we should? Maybe one of the reasons he does not as we wish that he would is because we have trouble with those other six things. Is that when we work together, Acts 6-4 and Acts 6-5 together, God can do incredible things. I've heard it been said before, God's work done God's way never lacks God's supply. God's work done God's way never lacks God's supply. We could also put it this way, God's work done God's way never lacks God's supernatural results. And that's what we see here. Well, why did so many people get saved? Why did they multiply? Why did the priests get saved? Was it because of the pastors or was it because of the members? And the answer is this, neither and both. It was neither because it was God that did it. And it was both because it only worked when they all did what God called them to do together. Because you don't have a pastor that is Acts 6-4 without having some people who are Acts 6-5. And by the way, it's hard to have people who are Acts 6-5 without a pastor who's willing to preach the word of God and pray in the way of Acts 6-4. So maybe the best way of putting it is we all need each other. We all need each other to see these supernatural results. Whatever happened with these seven men? Whatever happened with these servants? I would suggest to you that those seven had as great a ministry in many ways as the 12. You say, Pastor, that's not what I've understood about the word of God. No, 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 follow me for a second. I would argue with you that there is the possibility those seven had as much of an impact on the gospel ministry around the world as the 12. We don't have any epistles from the seven, but I could submit to you just two men that I know from that list that changed the world. One would be Philip. We know that he took the word of God to the Samaritans. Well, the Samaritans had not yet heard the word of the Lord, even though it was said in Acts 1.8 in Judea, Samaria, into the othermost parts of the earth. Philip is the one who takes the word of the Samaritans. That's a huge step for the gospel. Beyond that, what happens? The Lord takes him up in the spirit 
And he ends up meeting a man from Ethiopia. And by the way, you want to talk about what we would call a divine appointment. He meets this man just as he's reading a scroll that contains Isaiah 53. You think God can bring you to the right people at the right time? Here's Philip literally getting dropped in on a man who's reading the scriptures about the smitten Savior. And he says to him, you want to know who that's about? He says, well, I sure would love to know who it's about because I don't understand a word of this. And he beckoned him to come into the chariot. And it ends up that that eunuch is saved. And again, we don't know from the Bible, but tradition tells us that that eunuch ended up bringing the gospel back to Africa and that he would have been maybe the starting point of the gospel being spread in Africa. A game changer. What about Stephen? Well, he was a powerful preacher. You get to the end of the chapter and you find out what a powerful preacher he was. Well, what did he do, pastor? He got cut down in his prime. He was a martyr. Oh, he was a martyr. But before he died, and by the way, before he died, he, 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 he didn't say, I hate all of you. He didn't say, take down the government. This is what he said. Father, forgive him. Humility. You don't have a feeling if he yelled something about the government. I don't know that it would have made much of an impression on a man named Saul. But there's Saul who says, I see something in him I've never seen in anybody else. Remember, his face, the Bible says, it was like an angel. That despite people gnashing their teeth on him and throwing rocks, and I don't mean those little pebbles out there that AJ throws at all of you. I'm talking about like real rocks uh, out there. He throws them. They throw them. And he died a martyr with Jesus Christ, not seated at the right hand of God. The only place it says standing at the right hand of God is if he's standing in honor of this man who died with nobility. But because of that, I believe you can draw a direct line from Stephen to Saul. Because Saul watched it all. He held the coats of those who were there. Why is it a few chapters later that all of a sudden when Jesus comes and appears to him on the Damascus Road, there's really not much of an argument? I feel like it's because Saul had been arguing with that same Jesus. Maybe not physically like he was there on the Damascus Road, but there had been a, a, a spiritual uh, uh, tug of war that had been taking place starting from the moment that he saw Stephen die in the manner he saw him die. In the manner he saw him die. And because of that, we have much of our New Testament and the gospel spread throughout Asia Minor and into Europe. No, no, that wasn't the 12. That was the seven. But the seven could do it because of the 12. And the 12 could do it because of the seven. Maybe we could put it this way. 19 people changed the world. 19 people changed the world. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the pulpit of Liberty Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, or if there's any way we can serve you, please let us know by contacting us at info at mylibertybaptist.org, or you can visit us this Sunday at 800 Washington Street in Easton, Massachusetts. May the Lord bless you as you grow in his word.